kind of old-fashioned word that most people don't use in everyday conversation unless they happen to be Christians. For Christians, it's one of those words we use to describe the relationship we have with one another, the mutual feelings we share for one another. Many years ago when I was a boy, I remember a local preacher defining it with more enthusiasm than enlightenment as lots of people all in the same boat together. The word is, of course, fellowship. Recently, however, the word has taken on a new lease of life and a new orbit outside of its Christian confines. Through the films based on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy and the first of those which was called The Fellowship of the Ring. So what is it that four hobbits, two humans, a wizard, a dwarf and an elf have in common? For those who haven't seen the film or read the book, these eight diverse characters are bound together in a shared enterprise to help Frodo the Hobbit to take the powerful one ring to rule them all to the place where it was forged to the cracks of doom and to cast it into the fiery depths. Only then can their world be saved from domination by the evil Lord Sauron. And it is this enterprise which binds them together in the fellowship of the ring. Now interestingly, this use of the word fellowship in that way is closer in its scope to the way the New Testament actually uses it than the way most Christians think of it but just something which we enjoy together over a cup of coffee with other Christians. If they're not Christians, it's a cup of coffee. If they are Christians, it's a time of fellowship. The Greek word behind it, the Greek word, let's teach a little bit of Greek in these. So, the Greek word is the word koinonia, which literally means to share something in common with some other person or person. So, for example, in the first century, suppose a group of men got together and invested in a boat to send on a trading mission to get spices from India. They would join together in a koinonia, in a fellowship, in a partnership with each other. Now, Paul, this apostle, this messenger of Jesus Christ, uses this word and the related verb that goes with it in this letter we're studying that he wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi to describe what he and they had in common. So what is it that Paul, an erudite Jewish preacher, by background anyway Jewish, what is Paul, a Gentile businesswoman, a Greek slave girl, and a Roman jailer, have in common? or more to the point, if you look rather congregation like this, for example. What does a seven-year-old and an 87-year-old, a single mother and an elderly grandfather, a road sweeper and a university professor, an undergraduate student from the Hebrides and a postgraduate student from the Philippines, and a young woman from a chapel family, and an older man who never darkened the doors of the church till he reached the age of 30, what do they have in common? In fellowship. 
That's what I want to look at as we come to the next installment in our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is called Shining Like Stars. And in a change to the advertised title, and if you'll get away with a kind of pretty corny term, I want to call it this morning the Fellowship of the King, of the King, King Jesus. So let's look at this together. If you've got a Bible, Philippians 1, verses 7 to 8. I want you to look at these verses and the surrounding verses that lead into it and to suggest to you that this fellowship of the ring, this enterprise that binds them together, has three components, three things that they share together that we should share together if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we're truly his followers. The first thing is sharing in the work of the gospel. Last week we saw, after the opening greetings in Philippians 1, Paul begins his letter with a thank you to God for the Philippians. What is it that he thanks God for? Well, look at verse uh, 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that little word partnership there is our koinonia word. I thank God because of your fellowship, your partnership in the Gospel. The Philippians were partners with Paul in this enterprise to share the good news about Jesus Christ with other people. To tell other people about God's Son Jesus who had died and been raised to life for them. Now, look carefully. When did they become partners with Paul? When did they enter into this shared commitment? Paul reminds them that it began on the first day, the day when they heard Paul's message and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the beginning of the partnership as soon as these Philippians believed in Jesus Christ. Now, you can read the story in Acts 16. Dr. Luke tells us what actually happened when they heard the Gospel. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, came to Philippi and preached the good news of Jesus. So, for example, the first person to believe was this Gentile businesswoman called Lydia. And when she heard she was baptized as a sign of her identification with Jesus Christ. But being baptized meant and always means more than that. It's not just a personal thing of you and Jesus. When you're baptized, you're baptized also into fellowship with God's people. You identify then with other Christians in a way that you never did before. Identification with fellow believers which means practical care. It can often mean costly care. So Luke records that immediately Lydia became a Christian. She offered Paul and his party hospitality in her home. Acts 16, verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And in the culture of the day, of course, as in many parts of the world still today, Opening your home to someone means more than just giving them a meal or bed and breakfast. It means accepting them. It means protecting them. It means identifying with them, no matter what the rest of the community might think. And this soon became a very costly thing. You know the story in Acts 16, following the exorcism of a demon-possessed girl, her owners having lost their income from her fortune-telling skills, 
instigated a riot in which Paul and his companion Silas were dragged off before the city magistrate, falsely accused of sedition. Without even the semblance of a trial, Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into prison. And we can be sure that this meant trouble for Lydia and the other believers, who had welcomed them into her home, all the other people in Philippi, identifying with these troublemakers in this town, meant trouble for them as well. Now you may know the story, the wonderful story in Acts 16, of how an earthquake shook the prison doors, the prison chains fell loose, the jailer, probably an ex-Roman centurion, fearing that his charges had escaped, was about to fall on his sword, and Paul called out and told him to stop, and said, we're still all here, and the jailer called for lights, and he fell down and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. What happened next? Notice again the practical identification. Acts 16, 33-4. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So another person in his family, very different from Lydia, joined in the gospel partnership. And in the morning, the embarrassed city magistrates on discovering that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and had been arrested and flogged and imprisoned without trial, requested them to leave the city with an apology. And we read, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Now, these were the turbulent beginnings from the first day of this partnership that was struck between Paul and the Christians in Philippi. Now, what is striking to me as I read it again this week is the speed with which they became partners with Paul in the Gospel of Christ. First of all, they got baptized speedily, as soon as they believed. They didn't wait for a day when they felt worthy of being baptized, and Paul didn't insist on some probationary period to test out whether they were genuine or not. No, as soon as they believed, they were baptized, in the case of the jailer, in the middle of the night. Now I can see today how there might be good reason to wait a few weeks to make sure that you're clear about what you're doing when you're baptized on confession of faith in Jesus Christ. But to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then wait for years for some magical day that's going to come when you feel worthy or whatever of being baptized is totally unbiblical and it's totally unnecessary. Can I simply say to those of you about this, some of you know my position on this, I simply say in love, what are you waiting for? You will never make yourself worthy. Your worthiness comes from Christ, with whom you identify in baptism. And notice that these new converts immediately got stuck in and identified with their fellow believers in the work of the gospel. Of course there were things they weren't mature enough to handle immediately in the service of Christ. You don't need a PhD in theology to offer hospitality to the hungry, care for the hurting, join in prayer with one another. One of the great things about our last Christianity Explored course was that some of those who had become Christians on the previous course were involved in helping to lead the next course. That's fantastic. Because they could identify with those who had just come before and after them. Most of all, there is a costly step involved in identifying with God's people 
in a practical and real way, in the locality where you live, declaring that you're a Christian, that you belong to a local family of God's people, to a local church. And again, there are many people who never today make that kind of commitment. We did a survey in this church ten years ago. It was really interesting. And the whole congregation of Charlotte Chapel, 956 adults came through the doors on that Sunday. Only 48% were members of Charlotte Chapel who committed themselves to the local church. Now, I know there are people who are visitors like you today and have just to a member in your local church. I know there are people who are visitors here who are still finding their way and searching to make a faith and a commitment to Jesus Christ. But can I say to those of you who can regularly, week after week, can I simply say, we need you. I know what you say, you say, oh, well, Charlotte Chapel's a big church. They've got all these resources, they run all these programs, they do all these things. They don't need little me. Yes, we do need little you. As in Jesus' day, the fields are wide, but the labors are few. We're desperately short of people who will commit themselves in active service. We're just in the process. If you remember, you know about, you'll know about this. If you won't, I'm telling you now. We're in the process of restructuring the way we organize ourselves as a church for the next five years. And you know what our problem is? We're looking at it as leaders and saying, how are we going to fill all the positions? Where are the people prepared to serve? Some of the simple things. We're short of welcomers at the moment. People who will stand at the door and just shake you by the hand and say, welcome to Charlotte Chapel. Now, you think it's a management? Not everybody's guest. I realize that. name it if you'd like to help with volunteering the There are so many opportunities to serve. And if Charlotte Chapel is not the right place for you, then God has got a place for you where you can use your gifts and develop them. But you need to belong to a local fellowship where you belong, where you're accountable, where you're using the gifts that God has given you. Don't be a spiritual gypsy who moves from place to place. And don't be just a taker, be a giver as well. You want to know how to join this local church here, where you believe you think God may have taught you, then there's a meeting in the vestry afterwards, we'll tell you a bit more about it. So the beginning of this partnership between Paul and the Philippians was when they first heard and believed the gospel. But in these verses, they're written some years later. We also see the continuation of the partnership. Paul thanks God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. When Paul and Silas were forced to leave Philippi, you might have thought that Lydia and the other church members, considering the riot that had been caused and all the embarrassment maybe that had been caused to everyone, they'd just be glad to wash their hands with them and see them on their way. Not a bit of it. The Philippian Christians continued with the partnership, investing in it by sacrificial giving of their money. We'll see later in this letter, we've got a Bible over, turn over into chapter 4, and verse 14, Paul speaks about this. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. So even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. These Christians started to send money to Paul to enable him to preach the gospel. 
gave them their membership. They sent a man named Epaphroditus to take care of Paul's need and to carry their gifts. So Paul writes about this in chapter 4 further on. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from the Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And earlier in the letter we learned that Epaphroditus almost lost his life when he took ill on the trip. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that he could not give me. Now don't forget, Paul was in prison at this time, probably in Rome, on trial for his life, to identify with a, a man accused of sedition before the Roman authorities was a very serious matter, a costly matter. But although Paul may be in chains, it doesn't mean that their partnership was suspended. You know, Paul's saying, sorry, I'm in chains now, we'll have to resume our business work when I'm out of here. No, even in prison, in his prison ministry, he describes his work as defending or confirming the gospel. You see that in verse 8 and uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. Defending the gospel means addressing false accusations against it. Confirming the gospel means giving positive proof about its truth. And so the partnership continued. Paul's aid, even in prison, was that those in the Praetorian Guard who were watching over him, making sure he didn't escape, they too heard the gospel, and his partners in this were the Philippians. You see, Paul was a very gifted apologist for the Christian faith. Few, if any, of the Philippians would be as equipped as he was to defend and conserve the faith. But they were still partners with Paul in this enterprise. They were still in this fellowship. It was their gifts, their encouragement, their support that kept them going, especially when the going got tough and the success rate seemed very low. No wonder then that Paul thanks God for them and the fact that they didn't tear up their partnership or look for fresh partners. See Clifford's comment. How fickle we modern Christians are by comparison. Often uncommitted and consequently unreliable in times of difficulty, failure or crisis in the fellowship to which we belong. When difficulties arise of whatever kind, we seek more comfortable passages. Not so the Philippines. So, are we committed long term, sacrificially, to the work of the gospel in the church where God has placed us? Are we like the Philippines, characterized by generous and sacrificial giving of our money and ourselves to the work of the gospel? I'm delighted that following that terrible tsunami disaster in a couple of weeks in this church we gave £18,000 for the appeal for the relief and help of those who are suffering. As Christians we should lead the way in this. But are we similarly committed to the long-term partnership of the Gospel? To share the good news about Jesus to people who are going to a lost eternity which they may enter via a tsunami or just of old age. Another £18,000 a year would pay for another gospel worker, maybe here in Edinburgh among international students or overseas in some needy parts of the world. If we are Christians, we share together in fellowship, in partnership, the partnership of the gospel. But that's not the only thing we share. Paul also refers in these verses to the second thing, sharing in the grace of God. Look again at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, 
is to have you in my heart so whether I'm in chains or descending and confirming the gospel all of you share in God's grace with me the verb share there is the verb from the noun koinonia to share in part with your grace what Christians have in common which unites them in this work of the gospel is that all of us share in God's grace what is God's grace? it's God's undeserved favour which we could never earn by anything we do paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross it is a free but costly gift now it is this grace which Paul experienced which he received as a gift from God when the Lord Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And it is the same grace, this free gift, which he then carried to the far parts of the Roman world, the Mediterranean world. It is this grace which he brought to Philippi and shared with the Philippians who received it gladly. Now, nothing could be further removed in terms of religious pedigree and performance from Paul, a Jew and a Pharisee, than a Gentile woman and a Roman jailer. Yet they all receive the same grace and share in the same grace as equal partners. It is not as though God accepted Paul as a very promising candidate, a much better person than Lydia, and certainly than the centurion or the slave girl, and he received immediate promotion and kingdom perks because he's come to Christ. No, while their roles and gifts may be different, they are equal in status before God. As we read at the beginning of the service, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized, notice again the baptism thing, who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. They all, we all, must come the same way, to the same place, at the level ground at the foot of the cross, where there is no distinction. The question is, have you been there? And the further question is, if so, have you moved from there? You think you're now better than someone else in God's eyes, rather than equal partners in the grace of God. Let me put it in really personal terms. Do you think God thinks more of me, Peter Granger, preaching in Charlotte Chapel every week, than someone who became a convert on the last Christian Christian? Not at all. We all came the same way. We all remain the same at the level ground at the foot of the cross. Now, if you really understand it, you know what you want to do. You want to tell people out there, hey, there's this wonderful free gift that you can be put right with God. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, but God offers it freely to all of you if you'll only turn from the sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You'll want to share God's grace with others. You want to share it with those who think they're excluded by their sin. Maybe someone here this morning. You think, well, God's grace is not available to me because you don't know all the bad things that I've done. Yes, it is. God's grace can cover all your sins. You want to share the good news of God's grace with others like Paul in the past who think that we are included because of our good works. 
who think that God mismarked on a curve and the pass rate must be at least 50% and I'm better than most people, therefore I'll qualify for the kingdom of God and I'll arrive in heaven, I'm sure about it. No, you won't. You will only come by the way of the cross. The gospel of God's grace excludes all pride. As the hymn writer puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply your cross. So those who are in the fellowship of the king share in the work of the gospel as partners and they share as partners in God's grace. Now a third and final thing, our time is going. Christians also share in the love of Christ. Maybe thus far you've thought that all, I've, I've ruined all your nice ideas of fellowship about it being this nice, warm, cozy feeling between two of us Christians. Well, it does include that, you'd be glad to know, but that's not all it is. That's the outworking of it. You may think, well, it's all like a business partnership and you can be in business with someone and not like them very much. But as Christians, we're in partnership together in a fellowship, while it is more than just emotion, always includes emotion, it is love of the deepest kind that transcends even normal human relationships. And this is seen in how Paul describes his love to the Christians in Philippi. He describes it in verse 7, look at verse 7 again. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. Uh, the verb translated feel is a favourite word of Paul and we tend to think feel means to do with emotions, to do with the heart. It's actually to do with the head. It's a misleading uh, translation. If you've got the Bible open, look at, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, that's the same word there, having the same love, being one, that's the same word again, in spirit and in purpose. The word is connected with the head, it's connected with aims and attitudes which we share in common with other people. And where they don't line up with one another, they need to be put back in line. Later on, Paul tells two women in this church in Philippi, chapter 4, verse 2, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Agree, again, it's the same word. To be of the same mind. But when you think the same, that then affects your feelings. Not just the head, but the heart, which is the seat of the affections and the whole person. So he goes on in verse 7 to write about his heart. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. So what Paul thinks and feels about the Christians in Philippi is linked to their shared aims and experience. And what are they? The rest of verse 7 tells us. They are driven by shared aims and experience. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. What unites Paul and the Christians together in this deep, passionate love is their shared aim of defending, confirming the gospel and their shared experience of God's grace. Out of it springs love. No ordinary love, but a passionate love like that of Jesus. So Paul swears on oath, which is a very serious step, certainly for an Orthodox Jew, a passionate Christ-like love. He says, God can testify, I swear how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. The word for long is the same one used in chapter 2 in the Epaphroditus who longed to go back home. He was homesick. Paul says the same thing, Alec Mateer paraphrases it. Paul is saying, I'm homesick for you. 
restless till we can be back together again. And the word for affection is one of deep, deep passion. Literally in Greek it's with the bowels of Christ. In the ancient world they thought your bowels were the seat of your emotions. It's a word often used of Jesus when he saw the crowds, Matthew 9.36. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's a word used of the father when the prodigal son, he sees him coming back home over the hill and he runs to meet him and he has compassion on him. And Paul says he feels about the Philippian Christians in the same way that Christ does. We could paraphrase it. Paul says, I love you all as Jesus Christ loves you. And notice he says all, not just the lovable ones. And so they share together in this passionate love, a love which can and must continue to deepen and grow. We'll see that in our next study in the next verses. But while such love can be nurtured and can grow, it cannot be induced in the first place. It is the mark, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is that you come to love other Christians. The most diverse group of people that you normally have no relationship with, let alone an intensely personal and passionate relationship. It is the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul writes, God has poured His Spirit into our hearts, His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Now the challenge to us today is, do we share that kind of passionate love with our fellow Christians? Is this something that binds our hearts together, that goes beyond normal human emotions, that goes beyond the love of family? If we only have a superficial relationship, then that's all it will be. But if we're united in the work of the Gospel, if we share in the grace of Christ, then we should also share in fellowship in the love of Christ. John writes in his first letter, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And such love is not just seen in what we say, but it's seen in how we act and do. So he goes on, dear children, let us love. Not love with words or tongues, but with actions and in truth. So are you sharing in the love of Christ? Are you in a love relationship with a group of other Christians? You belong to them. You belong to Christ. Final thought for Muslims. Back to the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings trilogy began with the Fellowship of the Ring and it concluded, if you've seen the films and read the book, with the return of the king. When the ring was finally destroyed, Sauron and his forces defeated and good triumphed over evil. Of course, it's only a story. But friends, one day the king will return. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, chapter 2 tells us, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the only way to be ready for the return of the king is to make sure that you're in fellowship. In the fellowship of the king.